I want you to turn to 1 John chapter 5 and verse 4 again briefly, and then we'll go to the Old Testament in 2 Chronicles. Our subject is victorious faith. That's the kind of faith that the Bible promises to us. It's the kind of faith that works, the kind of faith that God gives. There's a lot of people that have head faith. They agree mentally with God that, yes, God said, and yes, God could, and yes, God is able, and they call that faith. But that's nothing more than mental agreement. They're siding with the pages of the written word on the pages. Say, well, I believe that's true. That doesn't mean you trust that. It means you acknowledge that. It's faith when you trust it. And that is the way in the Bible that God promises to bring you victory in your life over your meager little circumstances, over the great mountains that will loom in your life uh, as a single person, married person, or as a business owner, or as a worker. All kinds of problems come our way, difficulties and unusual things and hardships come our way. There, nobody is dismissed from that. So we're going to face those things in this life. But the one thing that God has given to his people that will always work is faith. Real Bible faith. Jesus said to Peter, Simon, he said, the devil has desired you that he might sift you as wheat. But I prayed for you. Can you imagine God saying, I have prayed for you that your faith fail not? I'm not going to prevent you from going through this difficulty. I'm not going to stop circumstances from coming your way, nor an attack of the devil. I'm not going to stop that. I've told you what I will do if you will trust me, and you do that, and you'll win. I just pray that you won't fail in doing that. See, our verse says that this is a victory in chapter 5 and verse 4. He says, for whatever is born of God overcomes the world, and this is the victory that overcomes the world, even our faith. I would say on the basis of that one verse, everybody who is born again has this same kind of faith. And everybody who is born again does overcome the world. They don't make excuses why they're not overcoming. They overcome the world if they're born again. Wouldn't you agree with that? If that's the only verse we had in the Bible, we could say that. That whatever God gives birth to will triumph through life in this life. And they won't fall back and give up and quit and make excuses and whine and cry. They just overcome because something inside of them is greater than everything outside of them. And the power and the influence of an abiding Christ to those who are in tuned in, and everybody that's born again is, the power of the presence of God in your life makes you able to overcome everything that comes your way. That's what overcomers are. You remember the verse in Philippians 2, God is at work in you both to will and to do of his good pleasure? Well, this is what he does. Because he said in John chapter 6, 29, this is the work of God that you may believe. Because that's the one thing that God uses. He gives you his word, says, believe this. When you believe that word, you're giving him something whereby he will make good in your life what you're asking for. There's no greater triumph in a Christian's life than to have real Bible faith settled in his heart because that is how you overcome the world. And the faith that we're talking about, that we've been talking about, is this kind of biblical faith that when it's activated, it works. Now, what do I mean by activated? Well, 
to say this morning, I'll add this to it. Bible faith is a man's positive response to God. God makes an announcement. He said, this is the way, walk in it. I am the Lord, I will, I will, I will. This is his promise. I will bless you when you go out. I will bless you when you come in. I'll bless everything you put your hand to. I'll give you this, give you that, make you the head and not the tail, and so forth. Now, that's his announcement. That's what he wants to do. Isaiah 55 and verse 11 says, So shall my word be that goes forth out of my mouth. Remember that? It will not come back void, but it will accomplish that which I please. It will prosper in the thing whereto I sent it. Now, did God send his word to us? He sent it to us in the form of a book, a book that needs a revelation to understand it. You can understand it academically, but that doesn't make faith. But when God illumines you and you begin to see what he's saying, everything begins to change in your life because he brings you into his realm, into the realm where he becomes all that he says he is in life and in reality. And you begin to count on God to do things. That's a positive response, counting on God. I will trust you that you will do this. I need a healing in my body. You have promised several times in Scripture to heal me. I will trust you. That is, I will take you at your word. I will count on you to do what you said you would do. That's all I can do is count on the Lord. I can't make it work. I can only count on the Lord. That's a positive response. A negative response, which we would call unbelief, is when you know that God has promised that, but you don't trust him because either you're afraid it won't work, you've heard of other people that tried it and it didn't work, or I'm not sure I'm ready for that now, or that's a little too much for me, and well, this condition's been so long that I can't see how it worked. Maybe I'm just supposed to have it. And so you don't trust God for healing, and you draw back. That's been my complaint with you the last two or three weeks. We're letting things set. We're letting things slide. We're not fighting if God said he will do something, then trust him to do it. That's how he is glorified in your life. Otherwise, the people that get the glory and the praise in people's lives are those who make the pills and those who do the operations. But it's God who for us replaces all of those things. He becomes our source. And our positive response is simply saying, well, God, you have said, therefore I will. And you begin to trust the Lord, and you begin to let him do it. Now, I want to show you two illustrations of victorious faith today in the Old Testament because the Bible is filled with many illustrations of people who had faith in God and whose faith brought them to victory. We think of Abraham and Sarah. You know that one. Abraham and Sarah was a bit unusual and difficult, but a man took God at his word. Abraham simply responded to God. God said he would. Abraham said, okay, that settles it. And he did it. There was Noah. We know the story about Noah and the kind of faith that Noah had. Noah simply, by victorious faith, Noah responded to God the way God wanted him to. That's all God asked of us in this room this morning. You can't go beyond that. That's the limit of all you can do is just count on God. You think of that. You can't go out and build something, make something, find something, invent something that ever replaces faith when it comes to what pleases God. The one way you please God in this life is by believing. Remember that, Hebrews eleven six. 6? 
It's not what you do to try to impress God with, look how hard I'm working, look how much time I'm spending, how much money I gave, how far I've come. What God wants is simply you saying, Lord, I take you at your word so you get all the credit, you get all the praise. I resign myself to your word. I'm counting on you to do what you said. You don't find a lot of that today because a lot of people who started that way seem to be, well, you know, maybe after all. And years go by and they start backing off. As I stand here today looking back in my lifetime, looking back 30 years ago, Man, I can say that now. Looking back 30 years ago, and all the people I used to know who seemed to be able to quote so much Bible and go to so many meetings and be so faithful in attendance somewhere and were so cheerful and glad, and yet 30 years later, many of them have vanished. They've gone back to the way it used to be, where they once were, no longer thriving and flourishing spiritually. They remember the old days. They can still quote the Bible somewhat, but it's no longer their life. You think, what happened to people? What has happened to so many people? It starts with you just letting things slide. You just let things go. It's no longer responding to God daily the way he wants you to. You just say, well, we've come this far, and you begin to let things slide. You no longer want to fight that spirit behind your teenager who wants their way when you know they shouldn't do it. You don't want to go through the stands your ground and you just sort of give in to it. And once you start giving in, you start giving in in other areas too. And then you get quiet. And then you wonder about all this enthusiasm when it flares up every now and then. And you could just become, instead of a bubbling living water, you become like a little dry branch in a creek somewhere. And God sends his word to us in this last hour. Wake up. Remember that in the Bible? Wake up. It's the last days. Men are sleeping. The bride herself is sleeping in Matthew 25. Wake up. Awake thou that sleepest. Get that sword drawn. Put that shield up. Your enemy hadn't gone to sleep. He's still after you. Fight this good fight of faith. Overcome. Quit giving in. Don't take no for an answer. Fight. This is how we live as Christians. It's not easy, but this is how we live, and it does work. Now, 2 Chronicles chapter 13. Two stories today about two kings, and one was a father and one was a son. Now, we're very familiar with one of these, and we're somewhat familiar with the other one, but... One is one of my favorite stories in the Bible, but I'm using it today to show you what God shows us about what God will do if you will trust him. You don't have to be a king to get great results. We've had testimonies this morning of good things happening, and you're not kings or queens. You're disciples, and Jesus loves you every bit as much as he would love a king. I suspect more than a bunch of them. So in 2 Chronicles 13, these two kings I want you to see today, one is Asa and the other one is Jehoshaphat. And they both have wonderful stories. Neither one was perfect. They both failed, but God never forsook either one of them. So there's an encouragement here in these stories also today. Now, in chapter 14, we have a story of, first of all, of Asa. 
verse 1, chapter 14. So Abijah slept with his fathers, and they buried him in the city of David. Now, I've been there. I would tell you about it, but that takes up too much time. The city of David is not Jerusalem. It's right below Jerusalem. But anyway, the city of David, and Asa, his son, reigned in his stead. And in his days, the land was quiet 10 years. Now, something is good about that. No fighting. Nobody is dying. No war, no injuries, no cuts and wounds and pain. In 10 years, the land was at peace. Now, Asa, the Bible says, in verse 2, he did that which was good and right. He did that which was good and right. Now, his grandfather was Rehoboam. And if you're familiar with the history of Israel, Rehoboam was Solomon's son, who, because of bad advice, caused the kingdom of Israel to split into two kingdoms, the kingdom to the north, the northern kingdom, and the south, Judah and Benjamin, became the southern kingdom. And Rehoboam was the king in the south, and Jeroboam, a renegade, he became the king of the north. And they never got along throughout their history. They had moments of peace, but they usually were skirmishing and fighting over something. But Rehoboam was Asa's grandfather. It was not a good man. And his father was Abijah. Now, I said about Abijah in chapter 13 and verse 18, then the children of Israel were brought under at that time. The children of Judah prevailed because they relied upon the Lord God of their fathers. So Abijah made a decision in his time to trust in and rely upon the Lord. He opposed Jeroboam, and he won a battle. So there's something about Abijah and his influence, no doubt, upon Asa. Now, I'm saying all that to maybe add something to the teaching we get at home or the influence that parents have on their children so that as children grow up, they pick up that mantle that was given to them, the good things that they saw and heard, and they begin to carry that through their own life also. Now, it said this about Asa. Let's get a picture of the kind of man that we're talking about because what says about him can be said about you. In verse 3 and 4 and 5... He did away with all the occult influence in the land. No idols. You know, the people in that time liked to worship idols. They were influenced by the Moabites and the Amorites on the Jordan side of the river. And then there were the Hittites and the Habites and all the otherites and Ix and Ticks that were left remaining in scattered spots in Israel. And they worshiped idols and they had all these wild feasts and so forth. And a lot of the Jewish people liked to do that. Well... That's what got them in trouble throughout the Bible, idol worshiping. And God judged them, always judged them for that. So Asa, he knew that. It doesn't say how much Asa knew, but he knew that becoming king, that all of those groves and all of those idols, all of that's bad. That couldn't be good. So he tore all that stuff down. He began to tear it all down. Now, you can make this personal, too. When he began to deal with stuff in his own life that had gotten in there that wasn't good, that God would not bless his life because of it, when he began to deal with it, he began to find the favor of God in his life. In verse 6, he built fenced cities in Judah. For the land had rest, and he had no war in those years because the Lord had given him rest. Why do we not have wars? Because God gives us rest. Why does God give us rest? Because we do something right. It's when you do things wrong that things don't go well for you. But when you do things God's way, he gives you rest. That's a good thing. Amen. That's, right. That's a good thing to have rest. 
And then in verse 9, there came against him one day an army of a million soldiers, a thousand thousand. To tell you how many a million soldiers are, if a thousand men gathered in this parking lot, they would pretty well fill this parking lot up outside. You put a thousand people out there, that's a whole bunch of people. Now, if they were warriors coming against you, we got our hands full. But if you whip them, you got 999 more groups just like them to deal with. A million soldiers is a lot of soldiers. So the Bible said the Ethiopians came against him. And here's what Asa did because this is the kind of man that we realize he was. It said, verse 11, Asa cried unto the Lord his God. And this is what Asa said. He said, Lord, it is nothing with you to help people like us, whether with a lot or with just a few. We have no power to stop these people. Help us, O Lord, our God, for we rest on thee, and in thy name we go against this multitude. O Lord, thou art our God. Let not man prevail against thee. Now, that's all it says about his prayer. It doesn't say he waited on the Lord. It doesn't say they fasted. They might have done all of that. But what we read here is that Asa came before the Lord and he spoke these words. He said, we know that you don't need a big army to deliver your people. We don't need a lot of numbers. You can deliver us with a lot of people. You can deliver us with just a few. One of David's mighty men slew a whole bunch of Philistines by himself. And we know what Samson did, just one man. So you don't need all this, but Lord, we have no power against a million soldiers. Help us, Lord. Now, it just says that then they drew their swords, grabbed their shields. They went out to battle against them, and this is what happened. Verse 12, and the Lord smote the Ethiopians before Asa. Now, who smote them? The Lord did. Now, he might have used them. He didn't have to. God could make rocks fall out of the sky, or he could just make these people fall dead. He could. You really want God on your side. So the Lord smote the Ethiopians before Asa and before Judah, and the Ethiopians fled. But Asa defeated them so bad in verse 13 that they could not recover themselves, for they were destroyed before the Lord and before his host, and they carried away much spoil. God so defeated his enemies, and I pray that he would do this personally for us in our own lives about our enemies the things that come against us, that we would learn to fight back with the intention of eliminating this whole thing. Now, you can't eliminate the devil, I know that. But there are some things that people keep going through, and they accept that. They go through this. I went through it last month. Well, here it comes again. I'm going through it again. You don't have to go through that every month. You can fight that thing. I remember years ago, just a little revelation from the Lord. It wouldn't take an aspirin for something. And some, I'm sure, thought that was really extreme, extreme religion. You know, not even an aspirin. Come on. But then I realized, after all those years today, that's 40 years ago, I don't even need them anymore. I haven't needed an aspirin in 40 years. It seems to me that that enemy that would have kept coming back in my life and in my family was defeated once and for all. Let me tell you all something. There are things in your life, listen to me, there are things in your life this morning you can defeat once and for all, and you don't have to keep going through it the rest of your life. 
you need to draw your sword and fight. Here's a good biblical place to realize that. He smote them until they could not recover. Smote all the cities about, smote their tents, and so forth. Now, here's what happens after this great victory. A prophet comes to the king Asa, and he said, Asa, I've got a word from God for you, and this is it. He said in verse 2, the Lord is with you while you be with him. Is that fair? The Lord is with you while you're with him. If you seek him, he will be found of you. But if you forsake him, he will forsake you. It all depends on your choices. It's choices. It's responses, isn't it? Here's the deal, if you want to call it a deal. The Lord is with you. Now, if the Lord is with you, what does that make you? Victorious. Now, he doesn't just say the Lord is with you no matter what, not to him anyway. Now, in the New Testament, it might be different. But here he said, Asa, the Lord is with you while you are with him. If you want the Lord's presence, you spend time with the Lord. You want the Lord to bless you and your people and to give you peace and joy. What everybody seeks after, you seek the kingdom of God. You seek first the Lord, and he'll be with you, and you'll be blessed. Or you can just... Take church as a Sunday morning something and a Wednesday night something and we ought to do that and we go and, but we're here to have a good time. You can do that. You might find God isn't in any of that. But you might find that what he's in is not necessarily what the flesh wants. But when you get in there, you're glad you did because that's really what you now want. And boy, your enemy then begins to tremble in your presence. You know why he does? Because God is beginning to take charge of your life by your consent. You're willing to let him do that. And so he said, the Lord is with you while you're with him. And here's the deal. If you seek him, your choice. You seek him, you'll find him. But if you forsake him, if you don't seek him, and you're not interested, and you're doing all right, then he will forsake you. Does your Bible say that? Then he goes on, he says some more things down through there. He said, for a long time, this nation has been without a teaching priest. Do you see that in verse 3? This nation has been without a teaching priest and without law. What would that mean to the people? If the people have not been taught, what would it mean? That means that they're led by their feelings and their opinions more than what God says. Because they don't know what God says. Nobody's taught them. God gave teachers, but they're not teaching and so he said, for a long time, this is what the prophet says. But he said, when they in their trouble cried unto the Lord of God of Israel and sought him, he was found of them. And then he goes on to this prophecy, and it says in verse 8, when Asa heard the words of the prophecy of Oded the prophet, he took courage and put away the abominable idols out of the land of Judah and Benjamin, cleansed his house of all the stuff in his house, excuse me, out of the land of Judah and Benjamin, and out of all the cities which he had taken from Mount Ephraim, and removed the altar of the Lord that was before, and renewed the altar of the Lord that was before the porch of the Lord. He began to turn his attention towards God. And then he gathered all Judah and all Benjamin together. In verse 10, they offered the Lord great sacrifices of their spoils. And then verse 12, it says, I want you to see this. Then by Asa's doings, he led them into a covenant with God. How many other kings ever did this? I know Josiah did. 
Joash pretty much did. What would cause a man, a grown man who is a king, what would cause him to command all of his people, the whole nation, to enter into a covenant and agreement with the Lord? Would it not be something in his heart with the Lord? Would it not be possibly that a man has such a relationship with God, he has seen the fruits of it and is experiencing the benefits of it, and he says, I want the same thing for these people? If God's blessing me, he'll bless you. I'm no different than you when it comes to God. We're all on equal ground when it comes to God. God's no respecter of persons. If he blessed me because of the way I'm doing things, he'll bless you too. So let's get you blessed. Let's get this whole nation blessed. I mean, the people were distracted just like they are today. They had other things to do. They assembled because they had to. They weren't expecting anything to happen. They weren't really interested in this invisible God of Israel and this king. They were just part of the land. They liked the protection of the land, and they were living in peace and quiet while they were looking at the idols. He brought them all together, and he said in verse 12, they entered into a covenant to seek the Lord, the God of their fathers, with all their heart and with all their soul, and anybody that wouldn't, verse 13, was put to death. How many of you know you'd enter into a covenant? You count me in because the king can do things like this. And it says in verse 17, but the high places were not, all of them were not taken away out of Israel. Nevertheless, nevertheless, in spite of the fact that it wasn't exactly perfect, nevertheless, what does it say? The heart of Asa was perfect all of his days. Could that be possible with you? Can the same kind of blessing come upon you if the same kind of heart that Asa had, a heart for God, not a king's heart, it's a heart for God. Can you have a heart for God? In other words, can your life be motivated by something in your heart that God put there to want God to fill your life full of it? Of course you can. Then why isn't it like that? In light of all these stories we got and the way God responded to these men as men responded to God, we see the benefits of it and how they won their battles and overcame. Why don't we have that today? Well, I don't know. But look at verse 19 of chapter 15. There was no more war unto the five and thirtieth year of the reign of of Asa. Now, back in another chapter, chapter 15 and verse 10, if you begin there and then you go jump to here, that's 20 years without war. 20 years. 20 years without war, 20 years without all of this stuff. Why? Could it be that a nation was responding to God to live right? And there was peace. There wasn't anybody going to invade them. There wasn't any outsiders going to come and take advantage of you. Nope. There was peace. 20 years of it. And then here came another soldier, another army. But this was the 10 tribes of the north, Baasher, the king of the north. In 20 years now, he's regathered his troops. Because when they defeated Jeroboam back in chapter 14, 500,000 men died. That's pretty much a nation. So 20 years later now, that tribe is built up again. Here they come again. 
Now, Asa, remarkably, instead of turning to God because God has never failed him, he turns to a Syrian king, would you help me? And the Syrian king came down and from the north invaded him and all of that, and then they won the battle. Well, then we got a problem again. Another prophet, this time in verse 7 of chapter 16. This time as Hanani the seer came to Asa and he said unto him, because you have relied on the king of Syria and not relied on the Lord your God, therefore the king of Syria is escaped out of your hand. Were not the Ethiopians and the Luba made a large host with very many chariots and horsemen? Yet, because you did rely on the Lord, that's that positive response. Because you and Shelbyville rely on the Lord, he delivered your enemy out of your hand. What's the difference? The principle is the same whether a king does it or a little housewife or a businessman. It doesn't matter. God makes the promise. The promise is for us. We respond to the promise. God honors it. He's told Asa, the prophet, Hananiah speaking, and he said, now you turn to the Syrians instead of God. Therefore, the Syrians are going to cause you trouble. Were not the Ethiopians and the Lubim a great host that came up against you? And because you relied on the Lord, he said, you got this great victory and he delivered them into your hand. Why would you now, 20 years later, why would you trust in something besides God? What happened to you in 20 years? Did you get in a rut? Did you just sort of, I don't know, we're just sort of in church now. We got a nice church and we want to keep it that way. What happened to you? And then we got that classic verse in verse 9. In this setting, for the eyes of the Lord run to and fro throughout the whole earth. That means anybody. You don't have to be a king or a preacher. It could be you, a student in school, a young person starting out in life, a grandparent. The eyes of the Lord run to and fro throughout all oh, Kentucky, Indiana, and Wisconsin, wherever the rest of y'all are from to show himself strong in the behalf of those whose what? Heart is perfect toward him? Now let me ask you a question. Does this apply to us this morning in the United States of America, specifically Shelby County and specifically Shelbyville, Kentucky in Shelby County? And all you who are visitors, wherever y'all are from. Does this verse apply to us? Can you partake of that? The eyes of the Lord run to and fro throughout this room this morning looking at hearts. God sees hearts. He knows exactly what's in your heart. He knows where your heart is. He knows what pleases you, what turns you off, what you want, what you don't want. He knows nothing is hidden, not a thing. There's nothing hidden from God. He can see. He knows your thoughts because he's God. There's nothing he doesn't know. He knows where you're going. He knows everything that needs to be known. He knows it. And he said, I'm just looking for a heart that wants me to dwell in it. I want a heart that wants me in it. And when I find that heart, that person, that king, that boy, girl, man, woman, wife, husband, student, child, businessman, preacher, when I find whoever has the kind of heart 
that I use and develop and display myself in, I will show myself strong in that person's behalf. They will overcome. They will get the victory in their life. Give me your heart, I'll give you me. Where is it Christ dwells by faith? Christ dwells in your hearts by faith. But with the heart, Paul wrote, man believes. It's the seat of everything that works or fails in your life is in your heart. If your heart is right with God, you are right with God. And if you are right with God, all the resources of God are offered to you. He will show himself strong in your life, in your marriage, in your talents or work ethic. He will do whatever it takes to put you over because you've been willing to give him your heart. You know what verse 9 says? In the context of somebody who, yeah, he got some relief from the Syrians, but the Syrians are going to come back on him one day. Why didn't you trust the Lord with that? I've seen it a lot in my life, and I'll bring this up again in a minute. People that had a dramatic moment in their life where they trust God, maybe life and death situation, very difficult, a limb or a mind or an accident or something happened, and they went through some real struggles and overcame. And then 20 years later of an insignificant thing, they went to the doctor because they were scared. They think, what happened? Did your church let you down? Did you quit learning? Did they quit teaching? Did other things come into your life to occupy your mind and your thoughts and your attention? What did God do wrong? What's happened? The eyes of the Lord are still looking for the perfect heart. Mark my words, in these last days, he will find a lot of young folks whose hearts are like that, who are going to lose that frivolous, silly edge that often accompanies teen life and makes them act the way they really don't want to act, and they're going to find some that just get real serious. They're going to let God have their life, have their tomorrows, and have their right nows, and, and they're just going to seek first the kingdom, and God will bless them in whatever they do. You don't find a lot of people willing to do that because we think if it's ever going to work, we've got to do it ourselves. That's not what God said. He's the one who fought for Asa and won a battle for them. The Lord smote his enemies. He'll smite yours and mine. He'll make us the head and not the tail. Doesn't the Bible say that? He will go before us in Isaiah 54. He will go before us as a dread champion. And the devil will see you coming, and he'll know that your heart is in the hand of God, and he can do nothing with you except obey your commands. And the only way he can defeat you is to talk you out of that and to get you to listen to something else. Yea, hath God said. And you lay down your weapons, and he comes in like a storm. We get used to it. But we've got to fight, folks. We are fighting machines. I turn to chapter 17. That was Asa. Asa didn't exactly end well because you know what he did with that prophet that came to him? He put him in jail. How dare you talk to me like that? He put him in jail. And as chapter 16 ends, it says, In the 39th year of his reign, Asa was diseased in his feet, yet in his disease he sought not to God but to the physicians, and he died. Why didn't he seek the Lord? I don't know. I just know, standing where I'm standing, looking at all the years that have gone by, 
taking note of several things. I just know that it happens. I don't know why it happens. I just know it happens. Every one of us in this room this morning, if you're not careful, we can be vulnerable. Our only hope is in the Lord. Our only protection is God. And he said, if we will dwell with him in that secret place of the Most High under his feathers, we shall abide and we shall be protected. It's a choice. It's that positive response to do what he said. Now in chapter 17, got a new king. And Jehoshaphat, his son, reigned in his stead and strengthened himself against Israel, placed forces in all the fenced cities of Judah, and set garrisons in the land of Judah and in the cities of Ephraim, which Asa, his father, had taken. Now, I would say two things. Either Jehoshaphat knows he's going to have to fight Israel, and therefore he wants to make himself strong, or Jehoshaphat wants to protect his people. When Bonnie and I were in Israel, there was a place down near the Gaza Strip, just a one mile from the Gaza Strip, at a little place called Sedero, S-E-D-E-R-O-T, Sedero. And the government, because of the rockets that had been launched from the Gaza over into the Israeli communities, the government had built bomb shelters on the side of all these houses. And any time they hear the rockets, you know, whatever they sound like, they just run to their bomb shelter. Then it's over and they come back out. They're not really scared, but they were protected. I mean, the government cared about it. Maybe that's the way Jehoshaphat felt about his people. I don't want these people to die unnecessarily, you know, like in war or something. So I want to protect them. So he built these fenced cities, and you see a lot of that in the diggings and excavations over there. But it says this about him in verse 3. Now, I want you to get this because what I said about Asa will be amplified with Jehoshaphat, and what was true with Asa is also true with Jehoshaphat and is true with you this morning in this room. Here's what it says. And the Lord was with Jehoshaphat because. That's verse 3. Now, if we see a verse in the Bible that says, and God favored somebody because... Would it not be to our advantage to find out what that person did in order to gain God's favor? And if God is no respecter of persons and he favored that person because they did that, would he not also favor us if we do the same thing? So if we are wise, if there is an element of wisdom in our life, knowing that God is no respecter of persons, we read things like that and we say, well, if God did it for him, he'll do it for me. Because what Jehoshaphat did was imitate somebody else. Let me show you. And the Lord was with Jehoshaphat because he walked in the first ways of his father David and sought not unto Balaam. He had one source for all of his needs and that was God, just like his great-great-great-grandfather David. That was his source. Now, I would have to assume this, that Asa knew something about history, wouldn't you? You can't seek after the God of some mighty man in the Bible unless you know something about that mighty man in the Bible. And if you want to know something about that mighty man in the Bible, you're going to have to either read it or study it or somebody's going to have to teach you. I don't think a lot of kings were that eager to be real busy about history. You know, after all, you're the king. I mean, you're the... Charlie Potatoes, you know, the whole kingdom. Or you're the big man, or the 
the boss. But let me tell you something what I think about him. I don't know if Jehoshaphat did this because Asa taught him. It doesn't say he didn't. It doesn't say he did. I don't know if he learned this from his mother. It doesn't say. But Jehoshaphat came into his kingdom with understanding. Here's what I think it was. Go to Deuteronomy chapter 17. This is what I think. You say, well, what you think doesn't matter. You're exactly right. Unless I'm right. Chapter 17 of Deuteronomy, look at verse 14. This was the law. This is the way it is to be. Follow me. When thou art come into the land which the Lord thy God giveth thee, and shall possess it, and shall dwell therein, and say, I will set a king over me like as all the nations that are about me, Thou shalt in any wise set king over thee, whom the Lord thy God shall choose. One from among thy brethren shalt thou set king over thee. Thou mayest not set a stranger over thee, which is not thy brother, or hire you a king. Y'all remember that now. But he shall not multiply horses to himself. This is the king. He shall not multiply horses to himself, nor cause the people to return to Egypt by oppression to the end that he should multiply horses. For as much as the Lord has said unto you, you shall henceforth return no more that way. Neither shall he multiply wives to himself. Abijah had 14 of them. That's 13 way too many. But anyway... Neither shall he supply wives unto himself, because that his heart turn not away, neither shall he greatly multiply to himself silver and gold. In other words, now when a man becomes a king over the land, he's not to become king to make himself rich and famous. He becomes king because God makes him a king. God chooses for the people whom they will anoint to be king. You don't force your way in. A stranger doesn't become a king, one from among your brethren. And when he becomes a king, he's not to multiply to himself riches in abundance, have a bunch of wives that'll distract him, or seek a lot of silver and gold. Now, notice verse 18. And it shall be when he sitteth upon the throne of his kingdom that he shall write him a copy of this law in a book out of that which is before the priest and the Levites. Now, what does that mean? Does that mean that when a king becomes king, he is to write a copy of the law in his own writing while the priests watch him and coach him or maybe help him spell the words? Why? I don't know who did this. Obviously, some of them did. Probably he did because he knew a whole lot about his history. We'll show you that again in a minute. But verse 19, this is what it says about this law, this copy that he writes for himself. How long would it take him to write a copy of the law? Take him quite a while. With those priests looking down their nose at you while you're writing. And it shall be with him. What does that mean? That means that where he goes, it goes. It shall be with him and he shall read therein all the days of his life. Why? What's the purpose of the word that you wrote and now you must read? What's the purpose of that? That he may learn to fear the Lord his God, to keep all the words of this law and these statutes to do them. Notice, read, learn, keep, 
and do in one verse. That is the function of the Word of God as we, whoever we are, approach it. We read it. We listen to it. We learn what it says. That's where the teachers come in. And we do what it says. Now, let's just assume this morning that Jehoshaphat, this king, has done this. So that he is very familiar with the law and that he has a heart that fears God. Okay, now let's go back to where we were in Second Chronicles. He shall write this word. He shall read this word. He shall learn what this word says, and he shall do it. Now, let me ask you another question. Would that bring favor in your life? Would that be an avenue of grace into your life? And in light of all the things there are to do and all the books to read, to settle yourself, that the one major important thing in my life that will be with me all the days of my life is the word of God. I must read it. I must learn it. I must keep it. I must do it. Would that make you favorable to God? Would that evidence your heart's right? But Jehoshaphat walked in first ways of Father David, sought to the Lord, God of his father, walked in his commandments and not after the doings of Israel. So he was a man who knew the word. Therefore, what does verse 5 say? Therefore, in other words, therefore is the result of the action previously. You love the word, you read the word, you teach the word, you're operating in the word, therefore. Now, this will happen for you in this room too, just like it did for Asa. It's going to happen for Jehoshaphat. It's yours too. Verse 5, the Lord established the kingdom in his hand. you got to like this. The Lord established the kingdom in his hand, and the Lord strengthened him and all Judah brought to Jehoshaphat presence, and he had riches and honor in abundance. Did he ask for it? Was it a tax? Did he tax the people to get this? No. Why did he get it? Listen to me. There was no legal reason the people brought this to him. It's not a law. It's not anything else. It happened to be here that God favored this man and people brought presents and gifts to him. And it says that he had riches and honor in abundance. Who do you suppose inspired him to have all this? It couldn't be right because you're not supposed to have riches and honor in abundance. I mean, it's what people say today, isn't it, about religion? Would it be wrong this morning if God brought riches and honor and abundance to you? What if this week you had presents in the mail or somebody came by and brought you a million dollars this week? Now, keep some of it to pay Uncle Sugar, but what would you do? Would you be blessed? Of course you would. Until they stop the Bush tax cuts, then you will only get half of it. <laughs> but anyway, what if you got to keep half of a million bucks? That's a lot of money to keep, isn't it? Well, your glass is half full or half empty, depending on how you look at it. But he said here that he was blessed and he had abundance. Now, in verse 7, here's what he did. Here's what this man who was well-to-do, he didn't ask for it. People gave it to him. His heart was lifted up in the ways of the Lord. Verse 6 and he took away the occult influence of the land. Also, in verse 7, in the third year of his reign, he sent to his princes, even to Ben-Hail and Obadiah, Zechariah, Nathanael, Micaiah, and Judah. And with them, he sent the Levites and all of those people too. Sam, Bill, Fred, <laughs> Toby, and all those guys. They were the priests. 
Now think of this. Here's a king, knows the word, he's blessed, God has given him grace. No doubt he's got a smile on his face because everything he's touching works. Every decision he makes works. Everything he does is good. He has favor everywhere. And because maybe he remembered something that was told his father about there's been no teaching priest in Israel for a long, long time, he got his princes. These were the guys who led the tribes and who were the men of renown, people who had respect and were in ruling, or like captains. So he got his princes and he got all these priests and he brought them together. He said, I want you to go throughout all the villages, all the communities, all the places where the people are and teach them. I want you to hold Bible studies over all the land. Now, this wouldn't happen today, but it happened here. There's not enough people interested today in learning anything about the Bible. They'll listen to it, but they don't want it to make them change their life. They don't want to have to get convicted about these biblical things. They like to go to church if it doesn't preach the word. If it's a place where we deal with social issues and light and fluffy themes, they don't mind that. They still want you to preach the word so that it becomes convicting. But he wanted his people convicted, so he sent his teachers. He said, I want you to teach these people. I don't want you to back off anything, leave anything out. I want you to teach these people. Now, notice, they went out in verse 9, and they taught in Judah, and they had the book of the law of the Lord with them. That's what you use. And they went throughout all the cities of Kentucky, I mean, all the cities of Judah and taught the people. Now, if they were teaching the people, are the people learning something? It doesn't mean they're going to do it. It just means they know what to do. They're without excuse. If it worked for me, the king said, if it works for me, I want it to work for you too. I'm no different than you are. Like Elijah, he was a man of like passions as we are. He wasn't elevated above us because he was a great prophet. He was also a man. Your people just as important to God as Elijah was. You folks are. God drew you to him the same way he drew them. He plucks you out of the miry clay like he's plucked anybody out of the miry clay. There was nothing about anybody in here that commended us to God. We were all like sheep who had gone astray. None of us were any good. We're all like an unclean thing, Isaiah said. And the Almighty God went through this earth picking us whoever he wants. He picked us, picked this one, picked that one, and he births people into his kingdom, plants them in his court so they can grow, where he can keep an eye on them and make them fruitful, and then therefore bless them and where he can trim them and prune them too. That's a little picture that we have of our relationship to God. Not everybody's planted. There are tares along with the wheat. But whoever the wheat is, he gives you this word. He said this word, if you will learn it and you will take it to heart, it will commend you to the grace of God. And the more you go, it's more grace upon grace, more favor upon favor. People will look at you and wonder, how could it be? I go to the same church. I know more about the Bible than she does. And yet this woman is always peaceful, always happy. That man is always happy. These people I work with, they go to that crazy church out there. And I'll tell you one thing you can't deny, the fact that they're honest and they're joyful. 
What is it about them? Maybe it's just the influence of the word that God honors in our lives. He does that. And so again in verse 9, they taught the people. Now what happens when you start doing that? Verse 10, what happens? The fear of the Lord begins to fall. The fear of the Lord begins to fall on who? Well, it said the fear of the Lord fell upon all the kingdoms of the lands that were round about Judah so that they made no war against Jehoshaphat. Wouldn't you think today that if you had an enemy out there and he saw you leaving your watchtower to watch over where the enemy would come and you just go to a Bible study and sit out and not watch your wall, wouldn't that be a good time to invade you? Of course it would. Well, why didn't they? Because there's something about the way God affects our enemies. They want to go invade, but they think, I, I just can't do it. I don't know why I can't, but let's go over and kill some Jews. Man, I'm scared. I don't want to do that. They're not even watching their wall. Look, they're all gone. They're having a Bible study over there. Shemaniah, whatever that priest's name is, he's over there teaching the Bible. We could get them right now. They might have gotten to the border and something went, ooh. How many of you know God can make you feel scared? How many of you know that God could make somebody that wanted to hurt you, dread you? All he has to do is go, and you go, ooh. God could just look at you like that, blink his eyes, and whoever's trying to hurt you runs from you. I've heard stories in the war they had over in Israel in 1967 that many men got out of their tanks and took off running. The Egyptians did, not because there were more Jews coming. They saw things. They saw probably the Lord's host. <laughs> they might have seen a million tanks, and there weren't any. They got out of their tanks and headed for Egypt on foot, <laughs> fleeing across the sands where there was no enemy at all. But didn't God say he would make you flee when no man comes? He could do that. If you turn against the Lord, you will flee when no man comes. You run somewhere and you put your hand on the wall to rest and a snake will bite you. Folks, it's much better to have God on your side so that no weapon formed against you will prosper. And he will cause your enemies who come against you one way to flee ten ways. That's what favor is. And he said it came right here. It came from the fear, verse 10, the fear of the Lord that fell upon all the kingdoms of the land. And not only that, but the guys who hated them in verse 11 and 12, it said, and the Philistines brought Jehoshaphat presents and tribute silver. And the Arabians brought him flocks, even thousands and 700 rams and 7,700 he goes. Why? Why? Because of the influence of God on your enemies, because he said the wealth of the sinner shall be given to whom? The just. And so here's all these guys that don't like Israel with all this stuff, and he says, give it to Jehoshaphat. <laughs> and they're going across the border thinking, what are we doing? I don't know, but everything I got's following me. And they go over there and give it to them. They didn't attack. They just turned around, no doubt, and walked home. And Jehoshaphat might have been thinking, why? I don't know. I don't know why, except God, who is in charge of all the earth and controls the hearts and minds of all men, just said, 
take it to Jehoshaphat. What if he said, take it to Caleb? We got a Caleb here. Give it to somebody. What if he calls somebody well-to-do in a dream? I want you to write a check to this amount and send it to Shelbyville Christian Assembly so they can build a building with this and send it to them. Why did he write that check? He doesn't know either. What's it for? It's for us. Why? Why not? God blesses us. Not because we're out here being cool. He blesses us because we're taking to heart his word. He had riches and honor and abundance, he said. And Jehoshaphat waxed great exceedingly, and he took all of that money he got, and he built cities with it. Not for himself, but for his people. And he had a lot of business. The people were working in verse 13. They had jobs. They had soldiers. They were protected. And it says in verse 18, you count all the soldiers down through there that each one of these had. They had 1,260,000 soldiers. That's a pretty good army. About what they got today. That's a large army. And then it says, it goes on, if you will, to chapter 18. This is the story about Jehoshaphat. This is the one part that's not the good part. This is where he messed up in a sense like his father Asa did. See, there was another king. Ahab was his name. You know the story. Come help me fight against his enemy. Jehoshaphat said, sure, whatever you need, you got it from me. Mine is yours and I'm with you. And Ahab, remember, he dressed himself up like a soldier instead of a king. And somebody just shot an arrow into the air and where it fell, he knew not where except into the armor of the king Ahab and killed him. And that was when Jehoshaphat came back from that battle. He could have been killed himself. When they realized that he wasn't Ahab, they turned away from him and sought Ahab. But a random arrow, just a soldier, just shot an arrow in the direction of the enemy, and it landed in the king of Israel. Killed him. So Asa comes back from that battle. Now hold on to this. Next thing I want to read is absolutely not politically correct. It is absolutely not Politically correct whatsoever. Chapter 19. And Jehoshaphat, the king of Judah, returned to his house in peace to Jerusalem. And Jehu, here comes another one of these seers. God had plenty of them. And Jehu, the son of Hananiah, the seer, went out to meet him, and he said to King Jehoshaphat, I'm going to warn you, this is not politically correct, and it does damage to most people's theology. Should you help the ungodly and love them that hate the Lord? Now, will I ask you if that's still true today? Should we align ourselves with the ungodly to help them? I know if your enemy falls into a ditch or whatever, you should help them because you're a Christian. But when it comes to volunteering your services to aid and assist or advance somebody who is ungodly, Should you do it? Should you love people that hate the Lord? You know what that would sound like today in Time Magazine? Or maybe in the Presbyterian Church USA? There had been in a paper this week, they want America to cut off aid to Israel. 
because of the settlements. They've never been in a settlement. Never seen one. Now I have. I hope they build 15 billion more of them over there until they go all the way up into Iraq and because their land goes all the way to Euphrates anyway. That's another story, isn't it? So here we go. He said to him, Asa, Asa, come out. Now you've been up there helping Ahab. He's a wicked and ungodly man, and he died. You could have died. Should you help the ungodly? Should you get involved with all these causes that are for ungodly reasons? That's like going to people for counsel who are not godly. What's the first Psalm say? Blessed is a man that what? Walketh not in the counsel of the ungodly. God doesn't have anything good to say about the ungodly, let alone loving them. Like I said, theology gets messed up here. Because he even said to you, should you love people who hate the Lord? Well, no, you shouldn't love people that hate the Lord. If you want to say love is commitment, you shouldn't commit yourself to the well-being of people who hate the Lord. You're a Christian, yes, temporarily you do this or do that, but as far as it, throwing in with somebody, you can't do it. What about all the clubs and organizations that people join and belong to that are ungodly? What about lodges and stuff, secret lodges that men belong to and have always belonged to that have, if anything, they're anti-Christ? Should you be in something like that? Should you align yourself with people like that? Should you love those that hate the Lord? That's what he said. I didn't write this. Nevertheless, verse 3, the good things are found in you. You're not all bad. You've taken away the groves and all of those kind of things, and you're blessed. Now, chapter 20, this is what I want to talk about this morning. Now, here comes Asa. He's a man who's messed up. We've messed up. Asa messed up, did things he shouldn't have done. Everybody in this room has failed at least once and done something you shouldn't have done. You probably had to pay for it some way or another, maybe in your life or some other way, but that doesn't mean that God has thrown you out. He has dealt with you. He'll chastise you severely, and for a while, he can set you aside. He can dispense you, but he can also bring you back. He has ways of letting you know what you did was wrong. I don't approve of it. And now you're not going to be blessed all the way like you could have been. But you're not going to be thrown out either. I read that and I thought, I'm so glad that that's in there because I think of how many times I have not deserved anything I've gotten from God. And I got it anyway. And it makes me humble. You need to get on your face and give thanks to God. He could have judged you severely here and he didn't. I don't let it happen again. Don't do that no more. God is gracious. And probably because of all of that, a war came. A battle came. It says in verse 20, it came to pass after this that the children of Moab, the children of Ammon, and with them others beside the Ammonites came against Jehoshaphat to battle. One of his outseers came to him. He said, there's a great army coming up against us down by the Dead Sea, halfway up the Dead Sea in a place called Ziz, a cliff there, a rocky area, real rocky. He said, they're coming up that way, coming from Moab over on the Jordan side. They're coming across and they're going up this way. And he says, there's a whole bunch of soldiers, Jehoshaphat. 
And Jehoshaphat said, I will do what my father Asa did. Get your swords, draw your spears, come to the house, let's pray. Now, here's what he did. He didn't do that. Because this is a type here. Now we're looking at a picture of a New Testament church hidden in the Old Testament. The kind of church it will be when Jesus comes. This is how the end time church will be. And Jehoshaphat feared. He was scared. And he set himself to seek the Lord and proclaimed a fast throughout all Judah. They didn't have long, but those were the two right things to do. Not look for your spears or your guns, but go to the house of God. That's your source. He's the one who can turn your enemies. And Judah gathered themselves together to ask help of the Lord. Even out of all the cities of Judah, they came to seek the Lord. And Jehoshaphat stood in the congregation of Judah and Jerusalem in the house of the Lord before the new court, and he said, now he quotes here from the prayer that Solomon prayed in 2 Chronicles 6. You can read verse 28. And he said, O Lord God of our fathers, are you not God in heaven and rule not over all the kingdoms of the heathen? And in thy hand is there not power and might so that nobody is able to withstand thee? Art thou not our God who did drive out the inhabitants of this land before thy people Israel and gave it to the seed of Abraham thy friend forever? And they dwelt therein and have built thee a sanctuary for your name, saying, this is what Solomon said, if when evil comes to us as a sword, judgment, or pestilence, or famine, we will stand before this house... And in thy presence, for thy name is in this house, and cry unto thee in our affliction, then thou wilt hear and help. And now, that was his prayer, he puts God in remembrance of what God has said. And now behold the children of Ammon and Moab and Mount Seir, whom you would not let us invade when we came out of Egypt. Now here they are to take us out of this land. And we didn't destroy them, and we could have, but you didn't let us. Now look at them. They come to cast us out of your possession, verse 11. Oh, God, in verse 12, will you not judge them? We have no might against this great company that comes against us. Neither know we what to do, but our eyes are upon thee. In the last days, when things begin to happen, fear thou not, for I am with thee. You need not trust in, let's see, what is it, chariots and horses? What do we trust in? In the name of the Lord. We're supposed to. We know that. And so here's what happened. You've got to love this. Verse 14, then upon Jehaziel, the son of Zechariah, the son of Benaiah, the son of Jael, the son of Mataniah, a Levite of the sons of Asaph. Boy, that's a family line. Upon him came the spirit of the Lord in the midst of the congregation, and this is what he said. Three verses. Hearken to me, all Judah, and you inhabitants of Jerusalem, and you, King Jehoshaphat, thus saith the Lord unto you. Now, who's speaking, a man or God? Well, a man is speaking. Who's inspired him? You have to believe it. It's God. And he said, tomorrow, verse 16, go down against them. Behold, they come up by the cliff of Ziz, and you shall find them at the end of the brook before the wilderness of Jeruel. You shall not need to fight in this battle. Set yourselves and fix yourselves in in your place, stand ye still and see the salvation of the Lord with you, O Judah and Jerusalem. Fear not, nor be dismayed. Tomorrow go out against him, for the Lord shall be with you. You don't need a sword. You don't need a spear. You don't need fingernail clippers. You don't need anything. Just go out there where they're coming with swords and spears and set yourself in array. You, your children, your family, 
Because here's the deal. If that wasn't God, the word of God that spoke, and you respond to that, you're going to die. Amen? If that was the word of God through a man, then you're going to see something that has never been seen like this before or since in the Bible or history. Never happened before. The only place I can find it ever happened. A kingdom with all of its people, the little ones, the big ones, children, everybody, mothers, the suckling babies, everybody. They went out there the next day and assembled themselves in the presence of their enemy. And their enemy come marching up through that cliff. And here's what God, who can do this, this is what God did. You got to like this. It says, verse 22. When they begin to sing and to praise the next day. Now, they're assembled, and they're having a song service. Literally. When Jehoshaphat heard the prophecy, the people began to bow down and worship God. Hallelujah. Glory to God, they begin to say. They were acting like they'd already won. Faith is like that. Faith really is like that. Faith calls those things that be not as though they are. And so you begin acting like you have what you believe. Jesus said to act like it. Praise the Lord. Hallelujah. They were just thrilled and excited. Jehaziel spoke. We got a word from God. We win. We don't have to fight. Nobody's going to die. Not a single soldier. No mother's going to cry tomorrow because of the loss of a son. Nobody dies. We're going to see the salvation of God. <laughs> Glory to God. Now, how could they have that kind of faith? Why has no other nation, no other tribe, no other time in the history of Israel did a single nation have that kind of faith? They were taught. All that time that they spent studying and learning the word of God, God put that word in their heart. And so when God spoke to them in a time of crisis, in a time of difficulty, and circumstances were adverse, that word loomed at the front, and it captured their affections, and they began to say, praise God. He'll take care of us because we have heard and read that he took care of his people throughout history who trust him. And the next day, early in the morning, did you see verse 20? Early in the morning. I mean, I'm rubbing my eyes getting up, and these folks got up at daylight, and I'm thinking, man, we're all up so early for We're going to see the salvation of God. Woo! This is not politically correct either. Oh, I love this. Just love it. And he said, all you inhabitants of Israel, verse 20 at the end of it, believe the Lord your God, and you shall be established. Believe his prophets. Believe his prophets, and you shall prosper. One translation says, put your trust in the Lord your God and you will stand your ground. You like that? We won't see any more of this quitting and not fighting and laying back and letting things go. We won't see no more of that. You put your trust in the Lord and you'll stand your ground. Believe what his prophets tell you and you will succeed. Verse 22, when they began to sing and to praise, the Lord set ambushments against the children of Ammon and Moab and Mount Seir, which were come against Judah, and they were smitten. For the children of Ammon and Moab stood up against the inhabitants of Mount Seir, utterly to slay and destroy them. And when they had made an end of the inhabitants of Seir, every man helped destroy one another. 
Here's God's people standing on a hillside, just sat there with not even a weapon and praising God. And then the Moabites and the Mount Seerites and the Ammonites, they just suddenly started hating each other. They started killing each other. Why? Because God is in charge. God loves everybody. He must have loved them because he killed them all. There's some bad theology out there, but in this case, these were haters of God to come and take away from God what God gave to his people, and God caused them to turn against each other and start killing each other. When they kill one little group, the mouse said, we never did like y'all. So they killed him, and they got, I didn't like you either, so they started fighting. And they killed a whole bunch of them. When the folks of Israel finally got down there to where they were, all they could see, scattered I don't know how many soldiers, four armies would be. It might have been a million. They saw dead bodies everywhere. Just as far as you could see were dead bodies. That big plane down through there, just full of dead people. We didn't even fight. How'd you get the victory? Could you all turn to one more verse? In the same book, 1414. This was Asa. And they smote all the cities round about Gear, for the fear of the Lord came upon them, and they spoiled all the cities. And you'll find that in Exodus chapter 34. I read that the other morning when I was finishing reading Exodus about how God, when he established his people, he could keep his enemies from ever coming against them. He's in control. God is in control. And the people went down to that valley the next day, reading verse 20 and 21. They went out there where all these dead people were, and they had so much spoil. There was so much stuff to carry away. It took them three days, a nation. It took a nation three days to carry away the spoil. And I'm sure if one of them had a gold chain around his neck, two boys from Judah didn't go fighting over. He said, you can have it when I got four or five more in my pocket. I'll get, there's plenty of them. These guys wore their best stuff out here to fight, brought all their belongings, all their savings accounts. They brought everything they had. It took them three days to haul it off. Three days, all day long, probably through the night, the next day, the kids, mom and daddy, everybody with whatever donkey or thing they could haul them with, it took them three days to haul away what God gave them. Nobody had to covet anything. Nobody had to wish they had anybody else's anything. Then it said the next day they assembled in the Valley of Barakah. And there for a fourth of the day, they worshiped and gave thanks to God. Thank you, Father. Thank you for taking nobodies and blessing us. We're still nobodies, but for blessing us with everything more than we could want. All because we just listen to your word. We live it the way you say it, and we trust it. There's never been a people like this. Let me ask you something. Could a New Testament church have this kind of faith? Could it? And why doesn't it? Why is there such a struggle today with faith? If there is, I think there is. Have we quit listening? Have we quit reading? Have we quit putting our heart in it? Are we just kidding ourselves? Or is God knocking on doors this morning? Is he knocking on the doors of people's hearts and say, this is what I will do and this is what you can have. And this is the way it should be. Amen. Heavenly Father, in the name of Jesus, 
thank you, Lord, for blessing us this morning, giving us the time we've had this morning to meet together and to share. I'm taking all haste and need to go and get out of here away from us and let us listen. I pray that you've given attentive ears to all of these people to remember what they've heard, to go back and read it again, read it slow, verse by verse. And pray for the same results in their life. I pray for mine. I pray for these people. May the grace that comes by being faithful rest upon this congregation. May the Lord lead you and guide you through your lives. May your eyes be open to see the goodness that God has for you. And may your heart be willing to walk in the way that he shows where it leads to heaven. Father, I ask you to bless us this morning like that. Keep us in your care. In Jesus' name, amen.